You know, the, the birth of Jesus Christ is quite an interesting narrative. If you were going to write your own story of the birth of the Savior, let's say you were writing your own story, I don't think you'd write it quite like all the details in the Bible tell us took place when it comes to the actual birth of Jesus. You'd probably have him being born in Jerusalem at the headquarters of all religion in those days. You'd have him being born to some great prophet. You'd, if, you were, if you were writing a story about the king of kings, the one who existed before the foundations of the earth, I don't think it would be written quite like the Bethlehem narrative is. I mean, just think about all the strange things that take place in this Bethlehem narrative. The king of kings is born into a family that, frankly, doesn't have much money or any notoriety at all. They're just kind of two normal people, Joseph and Mary. They're bewildered that God would show up in their life and do this to them. They go to Bethlehem and there's no room for the king of kings to be born. You think God couldn't have made a room available? God's big enough to do that. But for some reason, God saw fit to make sure that no rooms were available when they got to Bethlehem and that the baby Jesus would have to be born in a manger and laid in a feeding trough. We're talking about the birth of the king of kings. I know how much we all fight to have our children delivered in good hospitals with good hospital beds. And I want you to think about this, the father knowing that the king of kings, his son, this infant would be born, chose to have him laid in a manger. The first people to hear of the message, lowly shepherds. We don't quite get that one because we don't quite have that type of relationship with shepherds today, but shepherds were kind of considered dirty and off limits in those days. You didn't really talk to them. They were kind of outskirts, a little dangerous, a little rugged. First people to have an angelic choir show up and declare, the king's been born, you better go check it out, shepherds. You wouldn't write the story that way. How about this one? Three wise men from the east. What are they doing in this story? Three magi? You know what a magi is? It's a, it's a, it's a knowledgeable person from the east, from the orient more than likely, who used astrology, which is a mixture of magic and, and, and listening to the stars, and knowledge about what they could discover in the world as a form of worship. This is the king of the Jews, and all of a sudden, he's laid in a manger, there's shepherds, there's poverty, and there's three kings from the Orient who are magi. What are they doing there? Have you ever thought about that? What a bizarre set of circumstances to make sure we didn't miss the magi from the east were at the Bethlehem scene. Why is that so important? I have a feeling it's very important. You know, division between people comes in all sorts of flavors, doesn't it? We're excellent at dividing ourselves. I mean, I can think of any number of things we divide ourselves on. We divide ourselves politically. We know that one pretty well. We divide ourselves on street lines. Chicago, check. We divide ourselves by sports teams. Chicago, check. We divide ourselves on race. We divide ourselves on accent. We divide ourselves on denomination. We divide ourselves on what side of the train tracks you come from, on what sort of upbringing you had. We find everything to divide ourselves on. Sometimes you might find in this life you're divided with somebody that you can't even trace back what you're divided with them on. How did this whole thing start? We love each other. What's going on here? How did we get so divided? We are people 
there's something pretty deep going on in the human nature that manufactures such division so constantly. It's a pretty big problem, isn't it? On our good days, we can be quite petty. And on our bad days, we can be pretty evil. All of this is a result of sin. See, if, if we chalk up division to some shallow, uh, shallow uh, problem, if we say, you know what, we figured it out, we know what the issue is, it's right, it's right here, this is where the issue lies, and then we look for solutions at this level, we never solve the actual division. But if we take a biblical approach and we root the problems of our division down to their actual core, and we realize that the reason we stay divided from each other, the reason we don't have peace between each other, is actually sin. That's the problem. That's the root. And until we deal with the root, there can be no actual fruit. That's good. It's almost like I planned that. That's, that's, that you got to deal with the root if you want to have fruit. You understand that? Until we deal with the actual root, you can never actually solve the problems. And if we settle for shallow solutions, because we believe that there's shallow problems in the world, We'll never actually deal with them in a meaningful way. There's an author, J.C. Riley, great theologian. Uh, he wrote this. He said, we can acknowledge that man has all the marks of a majestic temple about him, a temple in which God once dwelt, but a temple which is now in utter ruins, a temple in which a shattered window here and a doorway there and a column there still gives some faint idea of the magnificence of the original design but a temple which from end to end has lost its glory and fallen from its high estate. What he's saying is when you look at man, human, any human being on the planet, doesn't matter where they're from, doesn't matter anything about them, when you look at a human, you can see this, this remains of the image of God in them. It's something remarkable. It's unbelievable, and yet somehow it's been tainted by sin to such a degree that there's this ruinous factor to it. And until we figure out how to restore the ruins, how to get it back to what it was supposed to be, we're always going to be working off ruins. We'll never have the actual solutions. These wise men, when they came to Israel to find the Christ, they came because they were holding a scroll in their hands. How do I know this? Well, in Matthew chapter 2, these wise men went to King Herod. They originally went to Jerusalem because they had to find their way to Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is basically a, it wouldn't show up on a map at the, in those days. So they go to Jerusalem where all the people are. They talk to King Herod. They say, we're looking for Bethlehem. And he basically says, why are you looking for Bethlehem? And they pull out a scroll they had of the book of Micah. I'll get to a little later why I think they had that scroll. But they read this from Matthew chapter 2, from Micah chapter 5. They read this. An Old Testament prophet, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, that's a rather famous Christmas passage. That was written 750 years before the birth of Christ. It was foreshadowing the one who would come, that he would be born in Bethlehem. It's interesting what it says. Not only do we get the location of this one's birth, Bethlehem, but we get a little inkling of his ontology, his nature, his makeup. He would be from ancient of days. That's interesting. I wonder if the first hearers of the book of Micah sat there and scratched their heads and tried to figure out, what in the world does this mean? I wonder if they just fell on their knees and said, this is just too wonderful for me. Whoever this one is that's going to be born in Bethlehem, it's too much for me to fully understand. I have to settle for these human words that he's from ancient days. 
Not quite sure how to understand that fully. This rather famous Christmas passage goes on. See, Matthew, Micah chapter 5, where we get that Bethlehem narrative, it goes on. I want to read to you verses 4 and 5 from that same passage. It reads this. And he shall stand, the one born in Bethlehem, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Ready for that? He shall be great to the ends of the earth. Where were the wise men from? The ends of the earth. Sitting with this scroll from Micah. He shall be great, the one born in Bethlehem, to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This verse proclaims that the hope of the Christ that was to be born in Bethlehem was not just a hope for the Jews and Israel only, but this was the hope for all peoples under the sun. And the reality is, is that wise men who took enough time to reflect would recognize that they needed a little hope, wouldn't they? Because they were people just like we were people. And they lived in cities just like we live in cities. And they lived in division just like we live in division. And I bet they were looking around and for centuries people from where they were from were trying to figure out how do we solve the problem of division among us. I mean it just seems like we keep going to war. And then they get this scroll from Micah. Micah chapter 5 that says there's going to be someone born in Bethlehem whose name will be great to the ends of the earth. That means every nation. And he will be their peace. Not he will make peace. He'll do that. Not where he goes, peace will follow. That's true. But actually, he would be their peace. I'm sure that got them scratching their heads enough that they would take the perilous trip from wherever they were from to Bethlehem to find out who this king was. It's interesting. Our passage today is Ephesians chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles, open it up there. Paul picks up in the New Testament on that language. He will be their peace. Let me read to you Ephesians 2, verse 14. We're going to study the whole passage today. I want to pick out just one verse quickly. Verse 14 reads this. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Paul picks up on that language from Micah. He says, Jesus is the final one who has become our peace. The solution is here. The hope that the wise men were looking for is in Christ. And the implication of that reality is that we're no longer living with just the picture. The picture told us what would come. And if we keep striving for peace, looking for solutions in places that won't actually solve the root problem, then we're living as if we only have the picture. And we're waiting for, for some greater day when the real thing will come to solve our divisions. But we're living in the time of the incarnation. The picture has been fulfilled in Christ, and he is our peace. The solutions come. Now, I want to walk through Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to try to answer today this question of how do we have peace among each other. We talked last week about peace between us and God. But what does that mean about peace with each other, especially in divided times like the ones we have today? Let's begin in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that at the... At the at, Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now pause right there. 
The only command in this entire passage, we're going to go all the way through verse 22, the end of the, end of the chapter. The only command is to remember. Isn't that interesting? The whole thing is teaching us about what Christ has done and what that means for having peace among each other in the midst of division. And and the first and only command in the whole passage is that we remember. He says, look backwards. Don't forget who you are. Now, the whole context of this passage is unity among brothers, especially among ethnicities within the church. That's the context of Ephesians 2. There's Jews and there's Gentiles that came from all these different ethnicities. They're trying to do life together in the church. And he looks to the Gentiles who come from all these non-Jewish backgrounds That's probably 99% of the people listening to this message, non-Jews, ethnically, coming from many different backgrounds and cultures and ethnicities, the nations. And he says, remember who you were. You know, we're pretty good at remembering certain things about our story, aren't we? I think of people who regularly, and, and we all tell the stories of the hardships we've come over in our life. And God's written our stories. He knows everything we've gone through. He knows the challenges you went through as a child. He knows the devastations you experienced in your life. He knows the things that you really don't tell many people about because they're, they're pretty severe. And you look back on them and you don't look back as in the glory days. You look back as in the horror days because you know what you've been through. We're pretty good at remembering our stories, but actually what this text tells us is that underneath all of our stories, there's a a far more significant story. There's something far more significant to your soul than just the things that you've been through. Those are important. God has not forgotten those, and God's able to use all of those. That's biblical. And yet there's this deeper story that is your life. And if you're a Gentile, if you're not Jewish, that deeper story is that you were cut off from God. You are without hope and you are without God. And I don't want to temper or or lose the sharpness of this language. In fact, I want us to feel the knife-like edge of this passage. He writes out five distinct things that were true of you. Five distinct things that were true of you. Number one, he says you were separated from Christ. You didn't know Jesus. Number two, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You, you, You were not part of what God was doing in the earth. God, was, God had chosen a people for his own possession. That was the Jewish nation. And you weren't a part of that. You were a Gentile. You were outside of that. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, he says. Verse 12. What does that mean? It means that all the promises, they were made to the Jews. You've got to understand redemptive history. What God's done in history is he chose one nation, the Jewish people. And he said, through you, I'm going to bless the world, but you get all the covenants and you get all the promises. They're going to have to come to you to learn about God. We were those, like those kings of the east, who had to go all the way to Israel to learn. We didn't have the covenants. They were to the Jews. And listen to these last two. Without hope and without God. I mean, if if there is a story that we have to remember about who we are as a people... It's far more than how most of us tell our story. I know the things I've come through in this life. I know the challenges I've gone through. I know the difficult days. I know them very well. And those who are close to me, I've shared that part of my story with you. And yet, and yet my story fundamentally is not those things. My story fundamentally is that I'm a Gentile. The word means I'm from the nations. I'm not Jewish by birth. 
And my story, first and foremost, is that I was without hope and without God. I did not have God in my life. And no matter where I chose to find hope, it would never satisfy the deepest need in my life. And whatever I chose and whatever I fought for in this life, ultimately it would fall short of what I was made for to be known and be loved by God. Without hope, without God. Look, when we, come, when we get to the language of hope, Christmas is oftentimes tied to hope, isn't it? When we get to the language of hope, humans are experts at manufacturing hope. We're experts at finding hope in places that can't actually sustain real hope. We hope in everything. We're hoping in a vaccine, right? We're hoping that this vaccine will work, that it will spread enough that we can actually return to society the way we, we know it. How, much of, how many of us are hoping in a vaccine? And when you look at 2021... The primary thing you're waiting for is a hope to return back to normal. We hope that our jobs will get better. We hope that next year will not have as much division as last year had in it. We hope in any number of things. We're experts at manufacturing hope. But the Bible says that those people in the old days, in the old covenant, they were experts at manufacturing hope as well. The thing is they were without hope. Because underneath all those places where we look for hope is a longing in the human soul fundamentally to be made right with God and to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are known, loved, and you are being worked on by God without hope, without God. That's the starting place of your story. Now, why is this important? I'm, 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 I'm staying here for a moment. I'm trying to drive this home for a reason. If we're going to talk about unity among people where we get division, race, ethnicity, politics, you name the stuff we divide ourselves on. If we're going to talk about unity among people, it has to start with humility. And humility is rooted in a proper understanding of who you are and who you were. When you fully know this, and it becomes your identity, when you see God and you say, when you wake up in the morning, I was without hope, but you stepped in to my hopelessness and you rewrote that story, that makes you a very humble person. You can't not be a humble person when you realize you're utterly dependent on God to make good on your life. The root of the conversation on division between men has to start in humility. And it's got to start in humility between us and God. And then that works out in humility between us and others. It's first vertical, then it's horizontal. It begins with humility. That seed inside of you, which is humility, grows and bears fruit. But until you have that humility, not manufactured humility, anyone can say they're humble. I'm talking about humility before a holy God. Until that is there... It's going to be very, almost impossible for you to overcome real division in this life and to actually live in the reality of what peace Christ has earned on our behalf. Andrew Murray, who wrote a great book, Humility, I, I quote this book all the time. Listen to what he said. He said, people sometimes speak as if humility and meekness would rob us of what is noble and bold and strong. Oh, that all would believe that this is the nobility of the kingdom of heaven. That this is the royal spirit that the king of heaven displayed. That this godlike, this is godlike, to humble oneself, to become the servant of all. This is the path to the gladness and the glory of Christ's presence, always in us. His power resting on us. You want peace with God and peace with others? It starts with a proper recognition, verses 11 and 12, of who you were before a holy God. Let that form true humility in you. Then you look at the fruit that comes from your life. Number two, let's continue verses 13 through 18. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, 
that's the Gentiles, have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. Then here's that language from the book of Micah. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. What's the key word in that passage? You guys, did you see it? Four times it came up in those five verses. Peace. Four times. We see it in verse 14. He himself is our peace. Verse 15, so making peace. Verse 17, twice, he preached peace to you who are far off, peace to those who are near. Peace, peace. What is this peace he speaks of? Well, actually, if we understand the passage, there's two different pieces he's talking about. There's a vertical peace, vertical peace first, and that vertical peace then flows into horizontal peace. This is Bible. I want you to get this. We are being bombarded by false solutions to the divisions of mankind. We cannot solve horizontal peace until we solve vertical peace. We're Christians. We have to build ourselves on that platform. Vertical peace, verse 14, says, He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. See, that verse says that the three men like the Magi who were Gentiles who were cut off from God entirely because they didn't know God and didn't have all the covenants of the Old Testament, now find themselves on equal footing with Jews. Both of them finding our peace with God through Jesus Christ. What this means is that no matter what your background is, no matter where you came from, no matter how much money you have, no matter what color your skin is, no matter what ethnicity you're from, no matter what nation you're from, no matter where you're living right now, There is one way for every person under the sun to find peace with God. And it's through the blood of Jesus Christ. Outside of the blood of Jesus Christ, there is no peace to be had with God. And any peace that we manufacture in this life ultimately will fall short of what we were made for. Peace with God is through Jesus Christ for both Jew and Gentile. That's vertical peace. And then he gets to verse 15 and 16, this horizontal peace which works itself out between each other. It says that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. There were two men, and now he makes one man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Don't miss the sharp edge there. Christians, what should be true of us? The hostility has been killed. That's harsh language. That's very clear. The hostility has been killed. What hostility is he referring to? He's referring to the ethnic division and ethnic tension of Jews and Gentiles trying to live in unity with each other in the church. The dividing wall of hostility. What was that? We, we, we see that in verse 14. He says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. Did you know that was an actual physical wall? The wall of hostility? 
in the Old Testament days, there was a temple, and you can go visit the ruins of that temple in Jerusalem today. The Jews had a temple, this glorious, beautiful building that they built in the Old Testament. And in the center of it was the temple compound. And in the very middle of it was the Holy of Holies, where the high priest could go once a year. But there were these different layers of courts within it. There was the court of the women. There was the court of the Gentiles. And the court of the Gentiles was the biggest court. It was this huge, huge court. I mean, if you just imagine the stage I'm standing on right now as the actual temple... The, the court of the Gentiles was about the whole room. It was far bigger than the, the actual building of the temple. And the court of the Gentiles is likely where the Magi had been previously. They probably had gone there. It was for people like them who were trying to find God, and they'd come to Jerusalem to see if there was something about God that they could find there. And they'd interact with the scrolls, and they'd interact with the Pharisees, and they'd interact with the pastors, and just with people, and they'd understand what God was doing in the world. And between the court of the Gentiles, right, if that's this whole room, and the wall of the actual temple where the Jews were allowed to go, hung a plaque. We know this plaque was there because archaeologists uncovered it in 1980. An actual physical plaque. You want me to read to you what the plaque said? It said this. This was not biblical, by the way. This was not, this plaque it was not commanded in the Old Testament to be there. It's not that there wasn't truth there, but it wasn't commanded to be there. But they put this plaque up on that wall. It said this, Gentiles, foreigners, must not enter inside the balustrade or into the forecourt around the sanctuary. In other words, don't come past this wall. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. That was the hostility. Jews enter into the temple. Gentiles, you know where you stay. And you cross that line, the only one to blame for your death is you. This is what's so incredible. Jesus not only spiritually broke down that wall, he tore it down stone by stone. Spiritually, he crushed it. When Jesus rose from the grave, the curtain was torn in two, and now Jews and Gentiles alike have access to God through one person, through Jesus Christ. We all go into the Holy of Holies. That alone is a sermon of itself, what it means that we have access to the Holy of Holies. When we pray, we're going before God. The way the high priest would go in fear once a year before the presence of God. You're a Christian. That's true of you. Do you approach it, your prayer life, with that kind of trepidation? You should. And did you know that now the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down? So every nation has access into the temple, which is God. Into the temple. We get to go into the presence of God in the same way. The dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. He tore it down spiritually. And then in the year A.D. 70, he made sure the whole thing got torn down in full. The ruins are still in Jerusalem today. You can go walk among the broken stones and see that Jesus wasn't kidding when he said he was going to tear down that building brick by brick in the book of Matthew. He tore it down brick by brick. Now, how does Christ's blood accomplish this? That's a bit of a mystery, isn't it? Verse 15, by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Here's what he's saying. In the Old Testament, Gentiles were cut off. They didn't have the laws. But also in the Old Testament, the Jews had a certain level of separation from God as well. 
they had their own level of being cut off. They couldn't all access the Holy of Holies. They require blood to be shed. And now both Jew and Gentile depend on that same thing together. And because of that, now there is this peace that comes between men and women. There's no more hierarchy. There's no more one has it one way and the other has it another way. One has a certain privilege. The other doesn't have that privilege. We all get on our knees before a holy God, before the King of Kings, and recognize his blood shed for us. Now let's get a little practical for a second. This is really important for us in our day. Our country over the last year especially, but I want to actually go back. Over the last decades and centuries has been having this conversation. Over the last year, it just so happens that it's blown up in a, in a very particular way. And in some ways, I'm grateful for the conversation. We're a church that talks about this regularly. We talk about ethnic differences, racial differences, political differences. We talk about the ways we divide ourselves regularly as a church, and we regularly celebrate the diversity of our church ethnically. Why is that a wonderful thing? Well, because we learn so much from each other. I'm dependent on people who have different stories than me and different ethnic stories from me. They see things in scripture that I can't see from my British Italian heritage. Am I growing up in the suburbs of Chicago? I need the nations. I need the different cultures. And, I, and I'm a better person in the church when I have those things as we see from scripture. We don't need to go too far in scripture to see that. Galatians chapter 2 and 3, Revelation 7, Genesis 12, our passage today, Ephesians chapter 2. It's all through scripture that God's people are a multi-ethnic people. And yet there's a peculiar bit to it about how we find peace among each other, which the world is still scratching their head on, but the church actually has the keys to. In all these conversations I see taking place in the last year, one of the critiques I have of the church at large is that we oftentimes find ourselves prioritizing language that is not rooted in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the solution to the problem. This is what I'm saying. I'm not saying that everything that's detached specifically from Jesus' death and resurrection does not have some level of value that we can learn from. I'm not saying that. But the Bible says that he is our peace. Therefore, as a Christian... Building my life on the word of God, if I want to figure out how do we solve racial and ethnic division in this country, I'm not going to look to sociological ideas. That's not my priority. My priority is Jesus' death and resurrection. Because when we, we unite on Jesus, a supernatural humility infuses people that brings them both on their knees in worship before the king. That's what makes this Bethlehem scene so amazing. Those magi should not be there. What are they doing in Bethlehem? They're on their knees, right next to some shepherds, right next to some Jewish parents. And there's a pretty strong unity among them. I was reading uh, one of my favorite pastors, African-American pastor down in Texas, Tony Evans. Tony Evans, he says this, he says, much of what we call racial reconciliation among Christian circles is nothing more than watered-down sociology sprinkled with a little bit of Jesus on top so that we can call it biblical. <laughs> Let that one stick a little bit. 
Thank you, Pastor Evans. Let me say that again. Much of what we call racial reconciliation among Christian circles is nothing more than watered-down sociology sprinkled with a little bit of Jesus on top so we can call it biblical. But to break down the dividing walls of race within the church, we must start with a better aim than tolerance, and that aim is biblical reconciliation. All right, let's back us up a little bit so we understand how deep the problem is. Remember, if you think we got shallow problems, you're going to look for shallow solutions. And you're going to look to whoever is the best-selling author to try to find out how to solve this problem. But let me help you figure this out for a second. The problem is deeper than shallow solutions. Ethnic division is not unique to America. We're not like the country who couldn't figure this out. This is a human problem since the fall. Look around the globe for a second. Syria. Have you been tracking Syria? That's ethnic conflict. Do you know how much death has taken place in that civil war? How much displacement is taking place? You go to India, you look at the states and the wars and the, the, the pillaging and the destruction between the states that are taking place in that country. Read Voice of the Martyrs. There's a wonderful website that you can go to and, and read up what's taking place in these countries around the globe right now. Go to China. Millions of Uyghurs, that's a particular people group, are being displaced from their homes, carted off in buses to brainwashing camps. This is not an American problem. We have put an American flavor on it, which is a travesty. I hate it. It makes me sick when I think about our history. But it is a human problem, and the problem is sin. And until we get that as a church, we are going to be settling for the next best-selling book, which will not solve the problem. The problem is sin. And until we get that right, church, until we get on our knees before a holy God with someone who looks, thinks, acts, behaves, fundamentally different from us on our knees before a holy God and say we both are fallen short of the glory of God, Jew and Gentile alike, and the only thing that covers sinners like us is the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross, horizontal peace will be pretty much impossible to sustain. But if the church can be the light, especially in a country like this, look, this is the, this is the opportunity that we miss America does have this unique thing about us. We have a rich Christian history, which many countries don't necessarily have. And that poses an opportunity for the church to literally show the world that when the church operates and thinks philosophically, theologically, and practically, biblically, and actually approaches our problems in a biblical way, we do life together, we live together, our love is sacrificial, and all the while we're on mission together because the biggest problem we're trying to overcome in this world is the evangelization, evangelization of the nations because people are dying in a Christless eternity and we cannot live with that reality. And then we get on mission together. All these different Gentiles from all these different nations because the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down and we say it's the blood of Jesus Christ. Come check it out. And the nations show up on the church's doorstep and say, the church has got it right. Until we unite on that, we have very little hope. But look around, church. This is actually a pretty diverse church. Racially, ethnically, culturally. Do we have a lot further to go? Yes and amen. I'll be preaching that one for a long time. We can change a whole lot of things. I'm learning. 
And yet the answer must be the Bible. And I want you to have a passion for that. I want you to see Ephesians 2. And I want you to say, he himself is our peace. I want you to say, Jesus is our peace. And when someone asks you your thoughts on ethnic reconciliation in this country, the first place your mind goes is, I've read that in the Bible. I know how that works. I know how deep the problem is. It's sin, and it's nothing short of sin. And the only solution is Jesus. You die on that hill. we got a long ways to go, church. Let me finish this passage. I'm running late. Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Listen to this. After all of that, how does he unite us? Listen to this, ready? You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the households of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, I love these three words, ready? Being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being, here it is again, built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We live in one of the most diverse and segregated cities of the, of the country. You want to talk about being missional? You want to talk about getting after God's work, God's way? See, we've got folks that we're sending off to the globe in this room right now. I'm looking at you, Mike. I see you over there. We're sending them to the nations, to the hard, the dangerous, the difficult, and the dirty places. We're sending them to places where, to be honest, Mike, it's dangerous. And yet, here we are in the city with just as big an opportunity right before us. And we're up. Who's going to solve this problem? The church. Jesus is king. He is our peace. That's our anthem. We declare it over and over and over again. And we live it. And we're a church. And we're a family. And we're built together. And it's beautiful. And it's messy. And it's broken. And it's so good. Peace among men. Jesus has earned that. What are those wise men doing at that, at that Bethlehem scene? Jesus made sure they were there. <laughs> he brought them from the nations to make sure we didn't miss how important peace among men was. That it flows out of peace with God through Jesus Christ. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love you. We worship you. I feel like I could have preached for another hour there, but i got to stop here. So Jesus, we love you. Would you work this into our hearts right now? Stitch us together in the name of Jesus Christ. Build something powerful here. Do something new in us, God. Send us from here on mission as ambassadors for Christ. And may we put our hope fully and confidently in Christ. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.